Well, uh, this is the first week of a new Sunday School series we're going to be doing on the book of 1 Samuel. So if you'll turn with me in your scriptures to 1 Samuel. And if you've got the cart Bibles, it's on page 225. So before we begin, let me um, spend a, a, a brief moment opening our time together in prayer. So let's go to the Lord. Gracious, almighty, sovereign God. Lord of the universe, we do come this day to worship and to praise you. And we thank you that you are God uh, who, though far above us and far greater than us, uh, deigned to speak to us in words that we could understand. And that you have recorded the stories of your people that we can uh, learn from, and that we can see ourselves in the passages that we'll encounter uh, today in the coming weeks. Lord God, what an amazing blessing it is for you to speak to us and allow us to speak to you in prayer that we can bring before you our deepest concerns, we can pour out our hearts before you and know that you are God who listens. And a God who remembers. A God who looks upon us uh, with favor. Not because of an innate holiness in ourselves, but because you have deigned to love us. And you've demonstrated that love to us repeatedly throughout history and most emphatically through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection, dying for our sins and rising that we might have new life in Him. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. So as I was thinking about how to uh, start us off, you know, I was thinking about, alright, coming up with a week's worth of introduction. And then I realized, y'all don't want to hear a week's worth of introduction. Y'all want to hear the words of Samuel. So um, most of the kind of introductory remarks I'll have, I'll, I'll probably sort of weave in... Um, to uh, various week studies when we come across uh, certain issues. But um, just briefly, I'll say um, a, a word about why I picked First Samuel. It's a really crucial book as it comes for us to understand the history of Israel. It's in this book we see it become a nation with a king. So we see the development of monarchy in Israel. We see the rise of the office of prophet in this book. So, and if we are thinking of Jesus' three offices, Jesus being prophet, priest, and king, this is the first book we see all three uh, of those um, human offices in creation and functioning in the life of Israel. So it's a really important book historically. The other reason I chose it is uh, it's, a, it's a book of stories. Um, stories of very real people um, who we will identify with. Uh, these are not stories of superheroes, mythological figures from ages past. These are the stories of ordinary men and women who've encountered the living God. So, with that said, as word of introduction, uh, let's begin. And I'm just going to start by reading the first chapter. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, 
whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerem, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Then Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. 
So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought them to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. So here we're dealing with, with stories of people. And we start off um, with this, this certain man. Uh, so who is Elkanah? What do we know about this person? What does our author tell us about this man, Elkanah? Yeah, we get a little genealogy. Yeah, so he's, he's of the tribe of Ephraim, so he's an Israelite. He, and he's an Israelite who, um, who, who knows his family tree. So that tells us um, he's an Israelite who, uh, who's a member of a family who's been um, fulfilling uh, their part in, in keeping um, the covenant with God and maintaining their family so he's a, an Ephraimite, so that's good to know. What else do we know about this? He has two wives. <laughs> yeah, what do we do with that? He has two wives. just say this note, Mary, you're free to like give him a shot in the ribs anytime, you know. Um, but she knows that already. She has to live with him. Um, but, uh, but seriously, I mean, there have been people who said, here we have uh, a case of multiple wives being presented without explicit moral commentary. Our, our story... Uh, teller here, our author, is not pausing to say, now that's a bad thing. He should only have one wife. You know, it's just matter of fact, he has two wives. So what do we do with that snippet? What does that tell us about Israel at this particular time? What does it tell us about him? Mike? Yeah, and, and it certainly, you know, here we have a situation where one wife is barren and one wife is being presented as being very fruitful. So if we take Hannah to be wife number one and she's born him no children, you know, he's concerned about the household economy and the maintaining of his household in the future. He needs to have an heir or his house, his lineage dies. So it's... You know, he's going along with the, the cultural mores that say, you know, having progeny is key to the continuation of your house. And if wife number one's not getting the job done, then you need to find somebody who can. Right. 
And, and, and as we think about it, even though the, our, our um, author is not giving us explicit moral commentary, I think there's some implicit um, commentary about this. I mean, do we see this being a happy, functioning household? No. <laughs> You know, here we have two women who clearly don't get along. Um, and Elkanah's decision to marry the second wife is, I mean, that's created the problem on which this entire chapter revolves. The crux of this problem is being created by Elkanah having these two wives. And, um, and it's important to notice uh, we only get Peninnah's name in uh, in that verse 2. From then on, she's referred to as rival or enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to see that in Samuel. Um, this is not the first instance of multiple wives we're going to have in this book. Saul, David... But again, the multiple wives, even though the author's not pausing to say this is wrong, um, this is a cultural practice that was acceptable at the time, but in God's eyes. But he's also showing that a lot of the problems we're going to see in this book are coming from this practice. Um, So there's this sort of implicit uh, undertone that um, even though the author's not pausing to say, don't have two wives, don't have more than one wife, there's that implicit commentary going on that a lot of the problems we see in this book are coming from this practice. Well, so then the question begs itself, when did the practice become unacceptable? In the New Testament, we read about the requirement for elders to be husband of one wife. And you wouldn't say that unless people still had more than one. So... When we don't have a scriptural, we have a scriptural mandate against polygamy, and what can we do with that? I mean, obviously, we have we have civil laws that, that mandate against it. But when did it change? The change culturally and when it's mandated are sort of two different questions. I would argue that it's mandated in the very first chapter of Scripture. Um, this is the reason, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and go to his wife singular. Um, uh, yeah. Contrary to Mr. Glover wanting to, you know, <laughs> to start his harem, I think it's wrong. I think that it, it, it falls in a similar category to divorce, where if you look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21 regulates. Uh, Polygamy, saying if a husband has two wives, this is what you do. But if you go back to the Genesis account, it says we shall become one flesh. And so the introduction of a second spouse kind of messes up that whole one flesh interpretation. And I think that what happens throughout Scripture is, if you look at this account, this is probably one of the more benign accounts of polygamy. And and the, the, one of the spouses is returned is, is, is continually described as a rival or an enemy. So that I, I think that the implicit commentary is very powerful. And it, when Christ then sheds light on uh, divorce in the New Testament, and then you see this, this scripture account that Doug brought up about 
setting, you know, what moment we're in the, the last day of the judges, and if, if you'll just flip back to the to the very last verse of, of the book of Judges, and in the Hebrew text, you would, um, Ruth is elsewhere, so a different organization, you would go from saying, reading these words, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, to, now there was a certain man from uh, Ramathiam Zophi. So, I mean, that's the situation. We have a period here of, of judges where um, we have a description of moral anarchy, political anarchy. It's whatever you want to do is good. No, you, and then we'll come back to Doug. It seems like this woman, and, and notice it, we're told, I mean, that's her, when her rival provokes her. It says it twice that the Lord had closed her womb. So, I mean, that's very much the recognition in the passage that, you know, this is something not normal. That this is something that stands out. And it's obviously God is intervening to close the womb of this woman. Yeah, because again, you know, we're being presented with her, even though we we're not told her sons' names or how many, you know, sons and daughters. I mean, it sort of implies there she's very fruitful. Yeah. So there. So even though it's you know we want to see her in a bad light, I mean, from their perspective, she's. She's blessed of the Lord. Children are a blessing. She's got lots of them. Clearly, Peninnah is, in God's eyes, is the most favored wife. And yet, we look at this implied Genesis 1 description for one wife. Yet, of the hundreds and hundreds of laws that God gave to the people of Israel, he didn't give them a law about only one wife. And so he asked the question in my mind, was it so implicit? Or if it was so rampant, if literally it was so rampant among people? Yeah, well, one, I'd, I'd also say it's not, it's, it's indicative of, it's also indicative of social rank. 
um, you've got to be a person of means to have more than one wife. Right. So, it just surprises me that there's not a commandment about it. Don't have more than one, you know, do not commit adultery. I'm not talking about ten commandments. <laughs> I'm not, well, I, yeah, yeah, so what does adultery mean? But I mean, that means don't have relations with someone who's not your wife. Yeah. If you have more than one wife, it's... So it's just a, it's an unanswered question. Yeah. But you know, clearly we had polygamy in Genesis. We've had polygamy throughout the Old Testament. Yeah. Mike. Yeah. Thank you, Joseph Smith. I'm aware of the let's see, the first five books. Bible were known and they were pretty much known. They were known as yeah, I, and that's something, again, as we work through the text, um, I, uh, and this, you know, James has already mentioned we've been reading a lot of Exodus. I see hints of Exodus in here, um, especially with um, Hannah's uh, prayer, you know, what she asked for. I mean, that's something we'll get to in a second. So I want to say that um, there's an awareness. Um, it's hard for us to know how how much, how pervasive it is, because there are some other things that sort of like, well... Uh, you know, ritually, that doesn't seem to be the way that's set down in the Pentateuch. But um, you know, so th- there's some disconnect between what's being the laws that we see in the first five books of the Bible and life as it's going on here. But then we also see hints that they know about those laws and. Yeah, this is not the first time we've seen a, a woman who's who's barren. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really important because, again, here we're seeing the establishment in Samuel. I mean, all those accounts of David. I mean, First and Second Samuel, we've got them in two books. Uh, originally, it was all one big, long book. had to be split into two scrolls because it takes longer to write things out in Greek than it does in Hebrew. You know, vowels, you know, double everything. Um, so, you know, so the whole cycle of Samuel up through the life of David um, is is all one book, and so we see those kings doing the very things that they're commanded not to. Which again goes, I think there's very much, uh, especially in the author's perspective, um, the the Pentateuch in mind as as he crafts this book with this commentary on 
the practices of monarchy as it's being established in Israel. Yes. Do you have that? Can you read for us? I don't want to... Boy, we've got more completely than I thought. Um, anything else we want to say about Elkanah uh, before we move on to Hannah? Yeah, you know, and that's... I mean, he clearly, I mean, it says he loved her. Um, and he values her despite the fact that in all appearances, you know, God's closed her womb. You know, he still continues to love her. He gives her a double portion of sacrifice. When she's upset, he consoles her. Look, don't worry about it. You have my love. What more could you want? Um, so you clearly have a man here who uh, loves Hannah despite all these reasons to despise her. Uh, that's a good question. Um, and double portion... I mean, again, there are lots of... It's a really particularly hard thing to, to translate. Yeah, and I think that's what James is. Is this, you know, I'm going to give you double, so, you know, maybe... So you need to give more and really... Yeah, it could be. Uh, here it's, um, you know... It, the cause that we're given here for giving a double portion is for he loved for he loved Hannah, but God closed her womb. So you know maybe that expression of his love for her is giving her double that she'll sacrifice, uh, and God will maybe he'll help change God's mind about her. Mary. Yeah, he's going yearly. Um, he's making this journey from Ephraim to Shiloh. Um, he's making the trek. We see him making that trek multiple times in this book. I mean, it, the, you know, it, it gives us a sense year after year. Now, we don't know which particular festival this is. This is one of those places, you know, in the Pentateuch, we're given the three festivals that are supposed to be celebrated annually. 
um, the uh, unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, the feast of booze. Um, we're, it's not named here, and it's, we're only told of a yearly festival. Again, this is similar. We get a yearly festival in Shiloh that's mentioned back in Judges. So, uh, not sure how this fits with what was prescribed in the Pentateuch. But it, we have a yearly festival to the Lord of Hosts. And he's going every year to worship and to sacrifice. So uh, we have a man who um, is being presented as a faithful worshiper of Yahweh. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I'm told. I'm gonna obey. So we have a, a man who's certainly obedient, Mary. And then we'll come to you, Mike. And I, I think that's a really, um, we'll sort of transition from Elkanah to Hannah at that point, because here we have this interaction between them. And, you know, from you know his perspective, he's going to her, he's consoling her, you know, come on, look at all the things you have. And at this other point, he just doesn't get it. <laughs> so, so let's move to, to, to Hannah for a moment. Um, so what... What emerges from this story about her? What do we learn about Hannah? Yeah, this is um, this is a, an aff- affliction to her. I mean, she is greatly distressed. Um, she is so troubled. Um, you know, at this festival where people are, you know, again, you know, they're going to worship, but it's also a celebration. You know, there's eating and drinking going on, and she is fasting at a time when there should be feasting because she's so distressed. What else? What's different about um, her deal uh, that she's trying to make is her deal involves her giving up the things she's asking for. And I think, you know, often our deals are give me this and I'll give you, you know. But then she 
Well, that's sort of um, well, not just later. That's sort of hypothetical. I mean, it's not clear that she has. We're not explicitly told she has. Um, you know, in her song, even the Baron gives birth to seven. I mean, it's not clear that's personally her. Verse 21 of what? Uh, of chapter 2? And that's the last we hear. Yeah. So, but that's not 7. That's 6. <laughs> but, I mean, and here she's not saying, you know, I'll give you the first one. She's asking for one son. And she's saying, you know, God gives her one son. She's going to turn around and give that one son back to God. Well, you wonder how application of the deal is because why is it so important just to have the son and the childbirth and then he disappears? I don't know that whether she has no association with him at all after that. He just lives away. She has a son. She knows who he is, where he is. Victor. Uh, a deal called Bob. Well, I mean, a vow is going a little... There's a whole chapter in, uh, there's a whole chapter in Numbers about when you make a vow. And, um, and for women, um, uh, your father or your husband has to approve it. So even though she's making a vow here, she doesn't have... Um, Yeah, it's not quite the Coke machine. Yeah, you know, well, the Coke machine theology. That, you know, I, I think I've worked out that this, you know, targeting with God thing is really right for me to do. But I'm not saying that that's what it is. How it's okay for her. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, one thing to note about this, this is one of the first sort of personal prayers we have in Scripture. Offered on a pers- from a person. Um, yeah. yeah, this is certainly unusual enough that the priest of Israel is like, this woman is obviously intoxicated. Um and you know, it, which is why um, uh, Jewish rabbis will often point to this as the model personal prayer because this is, you know, this is one of the first ones we have. Um, but the, the bargaining thing, yeah, that's troublesome. But I, I want to, I want to emphasize that um, in the way she's praying, notice the words she uses. Um, she addresses, she's starting with the Lord of Hosts, so she's addressing God um, by His covenant name, and the language she's using. Again, this is this really, as I've been reading through this past couple of weeks, this is. Um, struck me largely because I'm also dwelling in Exodus heavily at the moment. Look on the affliction. Um, uh, James is nodding. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, you know, in Israel crying out and God's response to Israel after the sort of 400 years of silence. He looks on their affliction. Um, 
remembering, not forgetting. I mean, that it's remembering isn't just sort of, hey, I'm over here, don't forget me. It's that remembering is invoking the covenant. Remember that you've promised that women in the land aren't to be barren. I mean, it's 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 prayer that's based on who God is and what God's promised. Um, with knowledge of how God has acted in the past. You cry out to God in your affliction, um, God will remember you. Um, and she's applying that life, those words being used as for the nation as a whole, what's different is she's applying them to her herself. And this is the man who's going to be the king maker. I mean, if this is a book about the origins of monarchy, uh, we're starting off with the book of the story of the birth of the man who will make kings. Uh, he, he makes the first two kings of Israel, um, the one that God initially rejects and then the one whose household God establishes. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, her importance, is, you know, it's... It's a personal story about her, but it's a personal story. It's Again, this isn't just sort of a hodgepodge of stories that have been thrown together that aren't related. Um, there is a strong purpose starting with this story, moving through the whole book. And here we're, we're being given this story to emphasize the role uh, of this man that is dedicated to God his entire life. And... Yeah. Yeah. Again, to sort of, um, even though this is a book that um, establishes monarchy, it doesn't seem to be uh, give us a favorable present, uh, picture of hereditary holiness. Um, you know, in this chapter, you know, we we get that we 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 didn't stop to talk about it because we're going to encounter these two guys later on. But Hophni and Phineas, Eli's sons, you know, they're just sort of hinted at here, uh, a little foreshadowing by the author because we're going to encounter these dudes later in the book. Um, but yeah, here the high priest's two sons are rogues. You know, Samuel's sons are going to be rogues. Um, uh, David's sons are going to be rogues. Um, this is. Um, uh, holiness is not um, transferable um, through blood. Um, something a little more is involved in, in the rearing of children. Yeah, that he's being dedicated, and it, notice he's being. Um, she's making basically a Nazarite vow, which was usually a temporary vow that a person themselves would enter, to, enter into for themselves. She's making it for him before he's ever born. So she's setting him apart, and not just for a short time, but for, you know, as she says when they, they bring him, you know, that he's going to be um, uh, dedicated to the Lord as long as he lives. Uh, so uh, he's being set apart. Um, for for his whole life.
So that's part of this Nazarite vow that um, that you're uh, you're not going to to let a razor touch your head, um, it, even though it's sometimes you get versions who stick um, the other part of the major part of the Nazarite vow, which is um, abstinence from alcohol. Um, so sometimes you get that slipped into Samuel. It's not there. It just makes reference to the razor part. But it's this explicit. Um, if you, we don't have time to turn to it now, but number six sort of lays out um, this practice in um, the Old Testament, um, making this vow, uh, dedicating yourself, again, for a particular time to God. And some people connect it to, um, to uh, sort of a, a time of warfare that you're going to you know, dedicate yourself to, to warfare on behalf of God by taking this vow. Other people interpret it in more religious terms, but it's the setting part of oneself, and you're showing that you're set apart by uh, you're abstaining from from um, from wine spirits and by not letting a razor touch your head. Uh, notice, um, so she she's praying, she's lifting up. Um, uh, James already mentioned this um, this reaction of Eli. What do we make of that? Uh, Eli's reaction. Um, you know, we mentioned it just a little, but you know, she's praying. Eli thinks she's drunk. What do we glean from that detail? Yeah, <laughs> this is a you know. This is a gathering for worship. Yeah, there's a festival going on too, but the primary purpose is worship. And this woman uh, is pouring out her heart, uh, pouring out my soul before the Lord. And you know, he sees it as drunkenness. Sort of hints at you know that day of Pentecost when the Spirit falls on on the uh, apostles, and ah, oh, they're drunk. Uh, Eli's certainly she's doing something that he, he's drawn to you know he's watching her <laughs> yeah so it's um, it's unusual so he's noticing it uh, Mike And notice how, you know, she's praying and, um, uh, let's see, I've got two different versions up here. So the um, New American Standard uh, translated as uh, she continued praying. Uh, let's see. Yeah, that's the same way the ESV. I mean, um, it's sort of literally she's multiplying prayer on prayer. Um, it's sort of uh, the root sense of that. She's adding prayer on prayer. I mean, it's it's a repetitive 
thing. I mean, she's multiplying prayers before the Lord here. Yeah, in her heart. Yeah. So this isn't a, you know, once kind of go pray it and then go on your way. Um, she is pouring, I mean, and the word she uses there, you know, pouring out my soul, you know, and the soul uh, for the Hebrews being the sort of the entirety of one's being. She's pouring out her entire self here um, at the doorpost of the house of God. Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you've asked of Him. Yeah, it's at that moment. I mean, and that's really significant. Nothing's happened at that point. You know, she she's not pregnant. She hasn't had relations with her husband. She has no word from God saying you're going to conceive a son. What the the priest says? Uh, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your position. You know, she doesn't have a direct word. You know, God doesn't say to her. You know, give her that direct. You're going to conceive a son, and and then he'll. Be, but she takes it that way because Eli says, "Go in peace." Like. These two are their lives are going to be intertwined, but and it's really um, the way she's changed him. Uh, you know, he, he, you know, if we see sort of we see her change from you know her being downcast to her face no longer being sad, but he changes from th- thinking her to be drunk to um, seeing her as a fervent woman who has. Ask of God something and that God should bless her and grant her request. No. Because <laughs> she's been praying silent. Or if he's more used to seeing drunk people than praying people. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, a kind of reaction. Um, yeah, that, you know, he, he, um, 
it's not the way it's clearly not uh, a customary thing for Eli to have encountered either in her or, or anyone Yeah, because he's not a Levite. Something is going to have to legitimize that. Right? He's not a Levite. He's not supposed to be serving in the temple. And serving as a priest's role. And so you're going to have to have some kind of story about uh, the family's origin or its establishment is credible. The fact that you know, uh, this story helps us understand yeah it's explaining why why it is that he can be a priest it explains uh, you know uh, and particularly um, in coming chapters we'll see that uh, from an early age, it's clear he's going to be more than a priest. He's going to be a prophet as well. And he's, again, he's the person who is um, legitimizing Israel's monarchs. He is the one who says, when he says, Saul's king, Saul's king. When God rejects Saul, even though Saul's going to continue to reign, but in a sense, Saul's no longer the king, you know, we've anointed a new king. Um, and it's. It's uh, Samuel's authority uh, that's, or, or he's the means by which God's authority is being shown to Israel. So, I mean, it, you're right. We, it's a, even though this is about Hannah, this is really sort of legitimizing the role we're going to see for Samuel in this book. And Samuel does finally show up um, in, in verse 20. Um, and his name, you know, she says, she named him Samuel because I ask of him of the Lord. His name um, really doesn't, Samuel means named of God, but it sort of rhymes with ask of God. So it's sort of, he's both the one named of God and he's also the one ask of God, sort of simultaneously. We got a yearly festival when we're supposed to have three. Yeah, there are all kinds of, um, you know, as we try to understand what life is like in Israel, we sort of had that blueprint laid out um, in in the Pentateuch, and the execution <laughs> isn't following the blueprint. Um, and, and, and that blueprint, again, we're going to see it, the blueprint, even though there aren't prophets yet, the blueprint talks about when there are prophets. Even though there aren't kings yet, the blueprint lays out rules for kings. You know, that they're, and um, Matt's you know, already brought us to one important one that we're going to see violated from the get-go um, here in this book. So we have that blueprint laid out for life for Israel in Deuteronomy, but as we come to terms with how Israel's living, they're 
they're making all kinds of exceptions. Um, and as and God, yeah, as God's allowing and making use of these exceptions to you know sort of bring about His kingdom. I mean, again, you know, with the establishment of monarchy that we're going to see in this book. Um, you know, it's very clear that you know God is not looking upon this change um, favorably, but He's He's um, He's giving in to Israel's demands. Yeah, and it's really, you know, and, you know, I mentioned the order in the Hebrew Bible. I think the order in the English Bible, you know, before we get to all these important kings, we're given two women. Um, one who, um, who the offspring of the kingly line is going to come from, and then um, the story of this woman, Hannah, uh, and the king maker. Um, but we're starting with these two women and, and moving forward. And we're going to see that, you know, with these two kings. I, I mean, again, why this story starts is so great for starting the whole book. You know, when we encounter these first two kings, you know, we can sort of list those the sins of Saul and the sins of David. And it's sort of like, wait a minute, <laughs> what David did seemed a whole lot worse than what Saul did. But, you know, Saul, you know, jumps the gun and starts a worship service without Samuel and he's out. You know, David's killing people, marrying their wives and, you know... Okay, <laughs> you're the man after God's own heart. You know, wait a minute. Um, you know, what's what's going on here? And um, we're not going to get to Hannah's hymn today, but next week we'll get to this. And the theme of that hymn, and a major theme of the book, is the sovereignty of God. That God is going to do things in people's lives. Um, he's going to providentially control um, all these exceptions to the blueprint um, are all uh, he, are all for his particular sovereign purpose, and that that sovereign purpose involves real people um, who commit real sins. All right. Well, um, we've hit our time, so let me close this in a word of prayer. Oh, gracious God, we ask that you might um, work in our hearts and lives, that you would make us like Hannah before you, not in that we tried to bargain with you, but that we pour out our very hearts and souls before you, that we come and um, ask fervently and expect to seek your blessings um, based not on our own uh, worthiness, but based on who you've revealed yourself to be to us based on what you've done in the past. Uh, 
in this uh, story we've seen this morning, um, all the action revolves around worship. Uh, everything, uh, all the major events take place around worship and make us cognizant of the role of worship in our lives, especially in the coming hour as we come together as the people of God to worship you. Uh, may that worship uh, similarly be the center point and driving force of our lives that we come and bow before the Almighty God uh, reverently and joyfully. Give us those hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.